So we're going to start today reading in Romans chapter 5, verses 20 to 21, which is actually the end of what we, what we read last week. And then we're going to read all of Romans 6. So because, again, we are, not, we are reading an entire chapter, which has been our practice throughout this series, uh, I'm not going to ask you to stand right away. But we will stand after I read the scripture and then as we get ready to recite our key verse together. So, Romans 5, verses 20 to 21 and chapter 6. The law was brought in so that trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using this example from everyday life because of your human limitations. So just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. And what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'll ask you to stand this morning.
And we're going to recite together our key verse for our series, New Year, New You. And it is Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 12-2. Very good. We become Christ-like when we live in our actions what we believe in our hearts. I thank you for uh, reciting that with me today. And we're going to continue to work on trying to memorize it, although I haven't done that great a job of memorizing it either. As you can see, I read it right off the paper. But the idea is, is that the more that we spend time with God's word, the more that it is embedded in who we are. And so I think it's important for us to keep reciting this message so that we hear it over and over again. We become Christ-like when we live in our actions, what we believe in our hearts, and we do not conform to the pattern of this world, but we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. I want us to think about this verse, but also read the book of Romans, because that is where we are finding the understanding that we have for holiness that we're studying in these weeks together. Let's pray together. Hide me behind your cross, Lord. Articulate your heart through my voice to your people, helping us every day and in every day and every way to learn to be like Christ by the work of your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So, I'm going to recap where we are. Three weeks ago, we learned that we are all created in God's image, that we are made to perfectly reflect God in everything we do, and that we were created good. This is all part of what's called the Imago Dei, and we have a purpose. We were created on purpose. Two weeks ago, we learned that we screwed it all up. And we got evicted from the garden. And we learned about how it was desperate and terrible to no longer be in communion with the God who loved us. Last week, we learned how God made a way to invite us back into the garden. Back to the place where we can live abundant lives in relationship with Jesus here and now and forever. And this week, we are going to talk about one of my favorite topics, which if you didn't pick up the theme from all of the music this morning, wow, you really missed it. We're talking about grace. I love grace. Grace is the most amazing thing. And it's not something you can earn. You can't buy grace somewhere. You can't like go down to the corner market and walk up to the register and put down any amount of money and say, I will take all the grace you have today. Because they will look at you like you are certifiable and they may call the police on you if you walk in and ask them to sell you grace. But here's the thing, they don't sell grace there. Grace is only gotten by God giving to us what we don't deserve. 
And in fact, God almost always gives it to us, gives us more grace at the moment when we are least deserving of it. Because when we ask to come back into fellowship with God, God says yes. And he pours out his grace on us, just like rain. Grace is in the very fabric of all of the stories of scripture. Remember last week when we talked about how Jesus was the way back to the garden, but God didn't give that way back right away? Part of the reason that it took so long for God to give us Jesus was because we needed to be able to see grace over and over again. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of a slow learner. Sometimes it takes me a while to get something in here that I really need to learn. And the reason I think that God gives us the story and picture of grace over and over again in scripture is because we are all slow learners when it comes to that. It is in ourselves, in our nature, to want to earn things, right? We like to work. We like to go to work and get a job and do that so that we can, in return, be paid a wage. It's part of what makes us feel good about ourselves, that we've accomplished something. I've done it. I have a paycheck. Well, I have some of what I earned. The rest went to Uncle Sam. But I have this paycheck in my hand. Yay, I'm worth something. My God says, what? No, that's not how it works in my world. That's not how my economy works. You don't have to earn what I'm going to give you. And in fact, you may have done just the opposite of earning it. You may be at your worst place and I'm going to give it to you. And God tells us over and over in scripture, story after story after story of people who were just like that. He tells us about Noah being saved from the flood. And he tells us about Abram, whose faith at the time when God chose him was in earthly gods and idols. And then God asked him to walk away from that into complete unknownness, and he did. Grace is God's work in the lives of Joseph's brothers who basically threw him in a pit and then sold him. And then Joseph rescued them. It's a picture of grace. Moses, who was used of God to rescue the children of Israel from Egypt, his grace comes in being used by God after he murdered a man and ran. Rahab, who was given rescue after a lifetime of prostitution, became one of the women in the lineage of Jesus. Gideon, who didn't believe God when God called him, but was given victory anyway. Elijah, who spent himself in God's service and still worried about the wickedness of those who intended him harm. And so many more in the Old Testament. But the perfect picture of grace in the very person of Jesus. The first chapter of John tells us that Jesus is grace. He's grace embodied. He is the person of grace. And we see in Jesus' life over and over and over more pictures of what grace looks like. 
the woman at the well, the woman who was brought to, to him before they stoned her for adultery, the man who hung beside him on the cross, whom Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. That guy had lived his whole life so poorly that he was hanging on a cross being crucified for sins that he had done against the Roman Empire. And Jesus offered him grace. He couldn't have done anything to earn it. He's hanging on a cross. He didn't go out after that and live a life of doing good works. He couldn't. He was in the midst of dying. God gave him grace. You see, Jesus gives grace. He gave grace to Peter, who denied him, to Paul, who persecuted and killed his followers. Jesus gives grace, and you don't have to earn it or deserve it or even understand it. One of my favorite parables, and Lisa, once again, alluded to it a little bit, is this story that Jesus tells about the kingdom. And it's found in Luke chapter 15. But it's not alone. And so I want you to hear all of what this chapter talks about. Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. So first of all, Jesus is now speaking to all of the worst people. The worst people in his community. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and she loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And now we get to the main story. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between his sons. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, 
How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. This is my favorite part. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile... The older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, and yet you've never even given me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This chapter is all about grace from the first verse where Jesus is hanging out with sinners and then called out for hanging out with them to the stories of the lost being found and the celebration in heaven over that restoration to what is probably the most famous story in scripture. The younger son is itching to leave the garden and his dad lets him go. He doesn't hold him captive. He gives him what he has coming to him. But outside the garden, the son finds that things are not so great. He isn't ready to live there, and in fact, he soon finds himself longing to come back to the garden. So he heads home. He has a speech prepared. Did you get that? He has a speech. Can you just see him? Like as he's walking, he's like, okay. This is going to be hard. I know it's going to be hard. So I'm going to get in there. I'm going to go, okay, Dad, I screwed up. I know, I know I screwed up. I know I can't get back to where I was. But can I please, can you hire me, please, as a servant? Dad, wait, no, let me back that up. Dad, I know I screwed up. He's seeing this. Can you just see him walking home? He's dirty. He was living with the pigs, for heaven's sake. He was not clean, okay? I just want to make that abundantly clear. He was not clean. He was sleeping with the pigs, and he was wishing he could eat the trash that they were eating. And he's laying in a pig pen, and he all of a sudden realizes he's an idiot. 
right? What the heck am I doing here? I could go work for my dad. I could probably beg him to take me back. He'll take me back as a servant, and then at least I'll eat like his servants eat. Oh, but grace. Do you see it? Do you see it? Here he is. He's filthy. He's stinking. He's rotten. He's awful. And his dad sees him. Way out there. Way out there. And his dad runs to him. He doesn't just walk. He doesn't send a group of guys out there. He runs. He's been waiting for the day when his son would come back. He's been waiting for it. You can tell. You know why? Because he was watching. And he sees him from way out there and he runs to him. And he doesn't just run to him and stand in front of him. He runs to him and he grabs him in a big giant bear hug and he surrounds him because he loves him. Man, this is, ugh, it's crazy. This isn't what you do to somebody who stabs you in the back. This isn't what you do when someone treats you wrong. This isn't what you do when someone demands what's theirs and abandons you. It's just not. But grace. And he not only embraces him, he throws him a huge party. Oh, but his brother. His brother has been in the garden the whole time. His brother's been diligently pulling weeds. His brother's been hanging out there. He's been casually eating whatever is around. He's been part of it. He's been in there, but he doesn't see it. You know how I know he doesn't see that he's there? That he's got everything he could possibly need, want? Because as soon as someone else gets grace given to them, he gets mad. How dare you? Because he doesn't understand that he is already in the garden. He's already in the place where he can have everything. Sometimes I think we do that too. We get a little, we see that somebody else has maybe been blessed a little differently than we have. Or maybe someone has asked for something that doesn't seem like they deserve and we get a little bit annoyed by that. And we forget that we've already been given grace. We forget that we already have it in our possession. We're already standing in the middle of it. And there's no paucity of grace. It's not like there's a limit to how much there is. There's enough. There's lots of it. It's abundant. It's overwhelming. And it's generously given to anyone who asks for it. Grace isn't just forgiveness, although it includes forgiveness. Grace is about being embraced in your stink. It's 
being held even though you failed. Grace is extravagant. Grace is generous beyond what makes sense. Grace gives. This is why Paul says to the Romans that those who are given grace no longer wallow in sin. Those who have experienced grace begin moving away from where they need it applied because of continued sin, but where they need more of it because they're just giving it away. Augustine, he's an old church guy, studied way back in the very beginning of church history. He says it this way, Grace is given not because we have done good works, but in order that we may be able to do them. Here's a more current parable about grace. I'm going to read it from this book because otherwise I'm going to get it wrong. It's, uh, you may have heard of it. It's a parable that was written by Victor Hugo called Les Miserables. I don't know if I said that right. My French-speaking daughter would probably correct me. But this is the basic story. Jean Valjean. He's a vagabond. He was just released from prison. He's about middle age. He has poverty written all over him. His clothes are not great. He's been in a French prison for 19 years, and he's kind of seems like he's been in prison for 19 years. He's not a sweet person. He's walked for four days in the alpine chill of 19th century southeastern France, only to find, because he couldn't Google and find out ahead if they would take him, but none of the inns would take him in. No tavern will feed him. Finally, he knocks on the door of a bishop's house. Monsignor Muriel is 75 years old, and like Valjean, he has lost a lot. The revolution took all the valuables from his family except some silverware, a soup ladle, and two candlesticks. Valjean tells his story and expects the religious man to turn him away, but the bishop is kind. He asks the visitor to sit near a fire. You did not need to tell me who you were, he explains. This is not my house. It is the house of Jesus Christ. After some time, the bishop takes the ex-con to the table, where they dine on soup and bread, figs and cheese, and use the bishop's silverware. The only thing he has. He shows Valjean to a bedroom, and in spite of the comfort, the ex-prisoner can't sleep. In spite of the kindness of the bishop, he can't resist the temptation of stealing the silverware. So he stuffs it into his backpack. The bishop sleeps. And Valjean runs into the night. But he doesn't get very far. The policemen catch him. It's a small town. They know. It's like if you were to steal from the church in moments. The cops will figure it out, right? He's running down the road. And the policemen catch him and take him back to the bishop's house. Now, Valdi knows that this means he's going to prison for the rest of his life. He's not going to get out again. But before the officer can even tell the bishop why he's brought Valjean back, the bishop says, oh, 
Here you are. I'm so glad to see you. I can't believe you forgot the candlesticks. They're made of pure silver as well. Please, take them with the forks and spoons I gave you. Faldine is stunned. The bishop dismisses the policeman. And then he turns and says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil but to good. I have bought your soul from you. I take it back from evil thoughts and deeds in the spirit of hell, and I give it to God. Valjean recognizes that he's been given grace. And because of that, he changes. He becomes the mayor of a small town. He builds a factory and gives jobs to the poor. He takes pity on a dying mother and raises her daughter. Grace changed him. Grace is enabling. Grace takes us from where we were, languishing in the pigsty, living as a vagabond, to the perfect garden where a feast is given in our honor. Not because we deserve it. In fact, because we don't deserve it. And when we pull back from that table, we are inclined to offer that generosity over and over. Grace changes us. It meets us where we are, but it won't leave us there. It celebrates our return, it gives us more than we deserve, and then it sends us out to live the grace gift we have been given. When we celebrate communion every week, we call it worship at the table. In your bulletin, on the screen, the table is the grace table. It is the table where Jesus invites us to come and dine and then go and live. The grace we get here is the grace that empowers us to give it away. Grace happens at this table. And then grace walks away and lives at your house, in your life. Because Jesus gives us grace not to sit in this building but to carry with us wherever we are. Grace is a phenomenal gift. Let's both receive it and give it away today.